You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're getting to the root of roots. Pun intended, I'm not sorry. But I'm really excited for this conversation because as plant folk, we all know that for a majority of plant species, roots are one of the most important organs. And yet, so many of us take them for granted. They're underground, out of sight, out of mind. But that's not what my guest does. Joining us from Magdalena College in the UK is plant evolutionary biologist, Dr. Sandy Hetherington. And the main focus of Dr. Hetherington's research is to uncover the origin and early diversification of plant roots. This research goes back many hundreds of millions of years in the past, but he also gets a lot of clues from what's going on in living plants today. And it really paints a fascinating picture of root evolution through time. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Hetherington. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Sandy Hetherington, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Matt, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be on the podcast today. So I'm Dr. Sandy Hetherington. Um, I'm a junior research fellow at the University of Oxford, and I'm particularly interested in the evolution of plants, and in particular, the evolution of rooting systems. Wonderful, and we have a lot to talk about today, but I'm curious, were you always a plant person, or is this something you kind of came to later in your education or career? Um, so actually, I, I set off doing an undergraduate in earth sciences, so in geology. So I did an undergraduate in geology at the University of Bristol, and I really, when I was doing that, I had some really fantastic lecturers in paleobiology. They really inspired me to start thinking more about evolution um, and combining paleontology and biology. And fortunately for me, in must be in 2010, the New Phytologist Trust, they had a, a conference at the University of Bristol called The Colonization of the Terrestrial Realm. Hmm. And it, going to that conference, that really just inspired me to, to think about plants and plant evolution. And after that, I was really hooked. Oh, wow. What an interesting route into this realm. And was it a, a tough transition to kind of go from general geology to studying more remains of living things in the rock record? I mean, what was that transition like and, and how did you kind of circle the drain to what you do today? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, so I think even as an undergraduate, I began to get more interested in fossils, uh, first of all, in how they're preserved and then the kind of biology that they're actually preserving in the rocks. And then to really understand the fossils, you've got to start thinking more about anatomy and development. And so because of that, it seemed like kind of logical step towards the living biology. Um, and then I was really fortunate. I did a did my PhD in the lab of Professor Liam Dolan in Oxford. And yeah, fortunately for me, Liam's, um, despite being a geneticist, has always really had this interest in paleobotany. So he's happy to let someone into the lab who'd, who'd never been in the lab before, never used a pipette before. Huh. Um, so it's kind of gradual, a gradual step forward. But yeah, really good. I really enjoyed it. Wow, that's cool. And what a unique opportunity to kind of have a chance doing something really uh, out of the realm of normalcy for a lab that you get into. And and it is interesting to think about how much paleobotany relies on modern botany and, and evolution across the board needs both of those things to kind of 
paint a more complete picture, right? So in drawing the connections, I mean, how much did you have to catch up to speed on sort of the living realm of botany to make your studies into paleobotany more effective? Yeah, so definitely. I really engaged in trying to understand a bit more about, um, yeah, kind of classic anatomy. And really the kind of root into that was a book by Kendrick and Crane, where it's, it's producing one of the early cladistic phylogenies of land plants. And kind of in that book, they, they have this big morphological matrix, which has all these characters and they're scoring all these fossil taxa. And it was really from having to go through, work my way through the book, and each one of these new characters, such as stomata or vascular tissue, would be um, one of the characters in this book, and then it would be scored for all the taxa. And this book just gave me this fantastic introduction to anatomy and development of plants. And so, yeah, from, from working from there and then working forward, yeah, it started me asking a lot more questions about anatomy yeah, plant anatomy in general. Very cool. And I love those sort of multidisciplinary looks at one branch on the tree of life. It's it's fascinating to have such a deep understanding of it. But, you know, to go from understanding that fossils are important and you need to know something about living plants to wanting to focus on roots, how did that trajectory kind of move you forward? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. So, again, part of this actually goes back to that conference in Bristol because um, Professor Leon Dolan came and gave a talk about his work on root evolution. And this was just absolutely fascinating for me. I'd, I'd before then been very interested in kind of evolution and development, the kind of field of Evo Devo, and I'd never really seen it done in plants. And so Liam at this conference just um, showed these, these lines of evidence looking at root evolution. I was just absolutely fascinated by that. And then the kind of second part of it was really, I was drawn into roots and still am really interested in roots because I think there's some really big questions still out there with roots. So things such as when roots evolved, how many times roots evolved, and why they evolved in the first place. So if we take something like leaves, for example, if you open a kind of textbook on leaves, there'll be a chapter on the T-loan theory, on the innation hypothesis, and the importance of the evolution of leaves. But roots, in some ways, are kind of overlooked from their kind of evolutionary significance. So that's really what drew me down the path of yeah, getting interested in roots and root evolution. Fascinating. And I agree. I think roots, although they are synonymous with plants, they, they kind of get overlooked. Oftentimes, they're doing things underground where we can't see or observe them. And I'm guessing that their, their fossil record, at least historically, has kind of been scant or hard to pin down. So in thinking about the evolution of roots, is this something land plants had as soon as they made their way onto land? Was this something they had in the water? Or we, I mean, how far back do you have to go to really understand where roots started to originate on the botanical tree of life? Yeah, so, so that's a, a great question and, and really kind of harps back, first of all, to what we define a root as. So if we start off by thinking more generally about rooting systems, when I'm talking about rooting systems there, I'm talking about any part of the plant which is carrying out the rooting function of anchorage combined with nutrient uptake and transport. So if you think about extant bryophytes today, they have this kind of rhizoid-based rooting system. Mm-hmm. So if you pull up a kind of liverwort, you've got this mass of these rhizoids, these hair-like cells at their base. So we might predict that they would be the kind of some of the earliest rooting systems we'll find. And then when we move into vascular plants, we actually get these kind of specialized rooting axes, roots, which have a developed from a root meristem with a root cap. And because all living vascular plants today develop these rooting axes, we may predict that their kind of common ancestor in the past, very early on in land plant evolution, also developed this axis. Hmm. But what we find is when we turn to the fossil record, and especially the kind of exceptionally preserved plants in the Rhiney Chert, is that you've got these very earlier vascular and non-vascular plants, but they all seem to lack a specialised rooting axis, an actual root with a root cap. But instead, you've just got a kind of horizontal axis covered in these rhizoid cells, similar to bryophytes. So I really think, to go back to your question, 
think routing systems were definitely there at the very beginning of the plant lineage, but actually roots as we know them today in vascular plants were actually a later innovation. Wow, that's a lot to take in, again, considering the diversity of plant life on this planet and all vascular plants having roots in one form or another. That's amazing to think that, you know, a lot of these lineages probably came on board without that. And so in thinking about the whole point of these rhizoids or these these structures, you mentioned anchoring and you mentioned nutrient uptake. Is it kind of like what came first, chicken or the egg? Was this, do you think at some point both? Or was it more about getting an anchorage to something? Or was it more about maybe facilitating some sort of partnership that allowed plants to get more out of their environment? Yeah, that's really interesting and a very difficult one to crack. But in general, I definitely think anchorage has got to be absolutely crucial because, you know, anchorage is something we see in quite a lot of aquatic seaweeds. You you really need to be tethered to a substrate. And that must have been even more important on the terrestrial surface where, you're, you know, you risk being blown away pretty much if mm. you don't have that anchorage. And if you think about quite a few extant bryophytes today, yeah, one of the key roles really is this anchorage because in many ways, if you've got a kind of large flat surface, you're actually able to absorb water and nutrients through that surface of the kind of the photosynthetic tissue as well. But yeah, definitely anchoring to the ground must have been one of the really key adaptations of rooting systems as a whole. Hmm. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I mean, anyone that's seen a tree fall over in a windstorm understands that even that can give up. But the the degree of anchorage that that affords the surface area is remarkable. So you mentioned the Rhiney chert. This is something that comes up from time to time when I do talk to paleobotanists. What is this deposit? Where is it located? How old is it? And why is it such a useful unit of geological history to study these sorts of things? Yes. So the Rhiney chert is a fossil deposit from Scotland in the UK. It's named after the village of Rhiney, which is close to Aberdeen in Scotland. And just over 100 years ago now, some geologists were looking at the rocks there and they found these kind of hard nodules. And looking there, they, they, they found plant material. And they realized that this was a chert, which means you've got kind of silica deposited as a nodule. So a bit like glass. Hmm. And inside that were the fossil remains of these early land plants. And what's so important about the Rhiney chert is it's, is first of all, it's age. It's 407 million years old, Whoa. which yeah, which places it in the Devonian period, pretty much when plants are about to go a bit crazy in terms of their diversity. <laughs> Many of the key features that we think of of vascular plants are evolving at this point in time. And yeah, so it's, it's of this kind of key age when plants are doing interesting things. And the kind of ecosystem it preserves is a hot spring environment. So not dissimilar to what you'd see in kind of Yellowstone National Parks today. Okay. You've got these hot spring vents and these geothermal pools around those vents. And growing around these kind of these pools of water was a diversity of early land plants. And at regular intervals, the water would actually flood these land plants growing by these pools. And it would flood these plants with this kind of silica rich water. And the silica would then deposit on the plant and around the plant and pretty much freezing these plants in their exact growth position for 400 million years. So what's really remarkable for us is we can actually turn to this point in time where we have these plants growing in situ. So they're frozen at the point where they're growing. So we get the plant there and it growing in these early soil light substrates. We get its interaction with early fungi. Um, so really, it's just this incredible window onto early land plant evolution. Wow. And to see pictures of what has come out of the Rhiney chert is incredible because it is such fine grain detail and it, it's almost eerie because any student that's done any sort of microscope slide dissection, look at onion or root cells or, or even just a cross section of a little bit of stem, 
there's corollaries there and to know how old that is it's just the strange time travel feeling that you get from looking at fossils like that yeah i i completely agree and to be honest one of the things i find most difficult with working with a divine chert is that when i do my own sectioning of plants i can almost never get to the same kind of resolution <laughs> that i can get in a 400 million year old fossil it's remarkable <laughs> Ah, uh, man, that is really funny to think about that. But then again, I mean, the fossilization process is working on the molecular scale, so don't beat yourself up too much. <laughs> so, okay, it's the Devonian period. This is, like you said, a kind of crazy time for plant evolution. They're really starting to diversify. I mean, what, from a roots perspective, I mean, what are you really seeing? You hinted at sort of the general theme of, of rhizoids and, and what plants were doing in these early substrates, but what really are you seeing in those early days of plant diversification on land? Yeah, so um, in the Rhiney Chirp, we've got a number of species, which are early vascular and non-vascular plants. And to start with, there's three or four species which have this kind of overall similar anatomy. So these, these plants, they lack leaves, so they've just got these kind of naked axes, which is kind of similar to the leafless and rootless fern silotum, if you know. Mm. So they, they kind of look similar to that. And what you've got is you've got regions of these axes which are kind of flat on the ground. They're kind of making a kind of mat of axes. And then from there, you've got other axes coming up and they'll often have stomata and then they'll have sporangia at the top producing the spores. And so, as you said, I'm really interested in the, in the rooting systems at the base. And what you find is just, in some of these places, just tufts of these rhizoid cells. So each rhizoid is an individual cell and it grows by a process called tip growth. So it grows from the very tip and it pushes through the substrate. And so you can have an axis which is, you know, very, very small in diameter, maybe only a millimetre or two in size. But growing out from this axis are hundreds and hundreds of these rhizoid cells that can be way over a millimetre in length. So they're just producing this enormous surface area for these plants on their base. And yeah, that's that's really seemed to be the common theme that these plants lack specialized rooting axes but instead just have portions of their kind of overall branching system which were carrying out the rooting function wow and then alongside those plants there's the plant which has been really probably interested in me most is a plant called asteroxylon machii now asteroxylon is a lycopsid and so people often describe it as the kind of the most complex plant in the rhino church <laughs> because it's got leaves um it's got these kind of branch rooting axes and yeah, in many ways, it looks very similar to lots of species of Hypertia or another extant lycopod today. And I was really drawn to this plant because it had these kind of branched rooting axes, which look just exactly, or from superficially, look very similar to the roots of extant lycopsids. However, from examining lots of these kind of fossil thin sections, I was actually able to discover the very tip of one of these axes. So I, I kind of set out into this project expecting to find um, a root meristem with a root cap, which is what you'd expect from a root of an extant plant. Yeah. But I was able to come across the kind of the meristematic region, the very tips of these axes, and found that despite looking like roots, they lacked the development of a root cap, which seemed to be remarkable that like we had these plants that were almost, they're kind of transitional forms on the way to being roots. They had many characters which makes them similar to the roots of extant lycopsid, but in some ways they were actually also really different. Wow. I mean, how did that moment feel when you kind of realized what you were looking at and what it could mean for, again, this this linking, this rhizoid-type development to more extant vascular plant root development? It was it was obviously an incredibly exciting day. So to, to give a bit of context, so I've been very fortunate in my research to be able to make use of collections that people have made often close to 100 years ago, and they're just sitting in museums today um, waiting for people to come and examine them. 
And so I was up in, in Glasgow in Scotland looking through the fossil collections in the Hunterian Museum. So the Hunterian Museum is, is fantastic because it, it contains this vast collection of some of the earliest Rhiney Church slides, which were the actual slides used by the key authors, Kidston and Lang, when they originally described the plants from the Rhiney Church. And so I'd spent a good couple of days photographing slides and looking through slides. And, you know, by the end of, I think it was by the end of the second day, you're beginning to lose hope because you, all you've been doing is looking at slides again and again, kind of scanning through for anything. And it really is a case that I really was on one of the last slides where I was about to give up for the day and head back to Oxford um, and just came across something that just looked a bit different. And I thought to myself, well, it does look like a rooting axis. It looks like Astroxylon and it lacks its root cap. So that's the kind of the kind of eureka moment. You know, I found something. I don't really know what it is. But then there's after that point, there's this long process of then trying to convince yourself. So kind of buoyed up with the energy of finding this first one. I then trawled around all the rest of the collections I could get myself to in the UK, going to the London Natural History Museum and the Manchester Museum, just trying to look through as many of the thin sections as possible in search of more. And it was really fortunate enough to actually come across a few more of these in collections around the UK. And the more of them I found, the more I became more confident that we were actually looking at these routing axes. So yeah, it was just a, a very exciting period of time, but also a little bit nerve-wracking because you keep thinking that the next one you're going to find might actually be different. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's nice to hear the insights into the, the, the that sort of process. And again, just thinking about a the time frame involved here, the likelihood of being preserved in the first place. It's it's oftentimes you know you get these one-off fossils that really set things forward, but to find even a handful, I mean those odds are pretty slim, right? Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely are. And it, it really comes down to, as I said already, just been so fortunate to work with these collections that other people have made in the past. And really, one of the big things for me is, obviously, people have made lots of collections before, and it's very difficult. They would often, you know, classically be looking at them individually under a microscope. And, and what I've been able to do is actually either by scanning or taking images with a macro lens, is take pictures of lots of these slides. And then you can actually quite quickly on your computer scan through and look for some of these features. And so in that sense, it's kind of, it's using new technology to, to mine these old and really impressive collections. Yeah, and that's a big shout out to the importance of collections. I can't emphasize that enough on this podcast is without collections and good pictures and data and, and just a treasure trove of things, you know, people like you could not be doing the work that you're doing or, or we would not have nearly the amount of data we have available to us. And again, with technology that's always developing, you never know what you can get out of, you know, sometimes collections that are over a century old. Yeah, exactly. I, I really couldn't emphasize and agree with you. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. And to, to sum it up with another example that I spent most of my time in my PhD working from a collection of fossil slides in the Oxford University herbaria. And I was actually very lucky to be working with these slides because they had actually been physically thrown in a skip to actually thrown out when they were trying to clear space in the department. Unfortunately for me, the um, head of the herbarium had actually gone in. He'd noticed that these things had been thrown out and went back in and said, OK, I, I think I can actually accession these into the herbarium, look after them. But it's, it's remarkable to think that many of these old collections are just when people aren't using them because they don't know about them are then at risk of actually being thrown away. Yeah, geez, the thought of what could have been lost in that moment. I mean, yeah. just even from a personal standpoint, but again, how often that happens over and over and over. Ah, luck sometimes has a lot to do with it. But again, collections are important and we must value them. 
So in thinking about roots, I mean, they obviously are the interface between plants and their soil-like environment. And one of the most amazing things that I've learned in the last few years is to think back to those early periods of land-plant evolution and think about soils. And I'm living in the Midwest of the United States right now. I probably have 15 to 20 feet of really rich organic topsoil underneath me. But that wasn't always the case. And those early days of plant evolution, I'm guessing the, the sort of soil substrate environment was very different. So do you think that has a lot to do with sort of how these root-like structures were evolving over time? Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think that's a very, very important point to make because it's so difficult when we look at the environment today. In most places, we're looking where we see this kind of these deep soils and these um, deep roots as well, to then go back and picture that in the Devonian period, you know, much of the terrestrial surface would have just been pretty barren in some places, especially or in the Silurian and into the early Devonian. And in the case of the Rhiney Chert, you know, the things that we're kind of referring to as substrate or soils are not something you'd call a soil today. Um, and I think something that's been really useful is the kind of acknowledgement that these things are more similar to what we call cryptogrammic covers. Mm. What we mean by that is if you go to somewhere like Iceland or another area which has been covered with snow and then when that's been receding you often get some of the early colonizers are things like mosses, lichens and we think that much of the terrestrial surface would have been covered in general by life far more similar to that than we're than we see today hmm. and I really think that yeah in general when we think about the evolution of roots that roots are actually also causing a lot of these changes in the soil environment because roots as they're growing larger they're actually helping to break up the rock and produce more of this substrate. So it is, it is very, very interesting to actually to think about these early rooting systems and the fact that many of them will have been actually on the surface and only superficially going into the soil rather than the kind of things we're used to now with these kind of deep, deep soil profiles. Jeez, that is, it's just mind blowing. It, it's so foreign to think about that, but it is so fascinating to understand in the context of what was going on, the selection pressures available, just really what was kind of changing and, and how plants had to cope with that. So in thinking about what the evolution of these more, again, vascular type roots really started to do, I mean, how did that change the way plants were able to live and grow? And I mean, do you see sort of an explosion after you start to see more familiar root-like structures starting to develop in these plants? Was it just kind of like, okay, now they're off to the races? What did it allow plants to do once those evolved? Really interesting question. I think there's a, a couple of ways to kind of approach answering that. So the first thing to note is, obviously, it's in the Devonian period where we first see the kind of roots that look like the roots of seed plants today. So these are, are turning up in this group called the pro-gymnosperms. So they have many of the characters that we associated with living gymnosperms today, but rather than having seeds, they were still reproducing via spores. Mm. And they had these kind of deep woody roots. And it's interesting to see that, obviously, when we're in some of these first examples of having trees that were obviously having these much bigger rooting systems we're more familiar with today. So that's definitely been this kind of explosion there. But one of the things I tried to do in my research is try and pin down, especially in the case using the Rhiney Church, the kind of character evolution. And it's very difficult sometimes to distinguish between um, one of these new characters causing this explosion in diversity, or whether this is a more circular thing as, as roots got more complex, whether plants were able to get bigger. But one, one kind of interesting point in that is that Again, it's also trying to think about these plants in their environment. So, for example, lots of these early lycophytes, especially the early lycopsids, would often be growing close to rivers. And the reason for this is that they were obviously far more reliant on water. Mm. And in lots of these river environments, you'd obviously, obviously get quite a lot of flooding and kind of burial of the plants. So in some ways, the habit of some of these early land plants was quite different from the kind of larger trees today. 
in that you might have a kind of sprawling plant that would grow out and then maybe the year after it would flood and get covered again. And so actually there would have been quite a large amount of this plant that was still below ground with only a little bit on, on the kind of surface. So quite different again from the, the kind of tree-like habit we're used to with lots of plants today. Wow, that is interesting to think about. Again, just the habitats, the the, the, the selection pressures and, and trying to, like you said, pin that down. I could see why that would be difficult. But you had mentioned a little bit too about sort of these, these partners, these fungi or maybe even cyanobacteria or something associations going on. I mean, was that being factored in or, or is this something you see a lot of evidence of where these partnerships set up early on? And and do you think that also kind of shaped the, the evolution of early root development? Yeah, I think I think it did. And I really think that partnership is is ancient and has underpinned so much of land plant evolution. Um, and it's actually in the Rhiney Church that we have the earliest example of the arbuscular mycorrhizal symbioses. So it's apparent that these symbioses with fungi were, were there incredibly early. And also when we look in the, the genomes and transcriptomes of plants, we often find that these core set of genes were there incredibly early too. So I, I think plants have really succeeded on land because of the fact they were they've been able to make these symbioses and these mutualisms with other organisms hmm. it's incredible i just can't emphasize enough how much the partnerships really do matter in life and and often again kind of get the short shrift i mean people are appreciating mycorrhizal fungi a lot more nowadays but to think about how old that relationship is and how complex it must be you know i can't help but feel that we've only just begun to scratch the surface of it yeah completely and i, and I really think there's a there's a huge amount of research going on at the moment to try and understand both the diversity of the symbionts in living plant groups and then also to, to then turn to the fossil record again and see whether see how far we can we can trace these symbiotic relationships back further it's absolutely fascinating and obviously the roots have really been central to this for for the sites of lots of these symbioses but one thing that's quite interesting again from the Rhiney church is we find these symbioses not just in those regions with the rhizoids but also in kind of more generally in the plant. So hmm. I think it's it's definitely interesting to note that the symbioses were happening in the kind of axes of these plants, even before they were the rooting axes below ground. Oh, wow. That's an interesting thing to think about, too, is just that these associations were going on on a maybe less a specific scale than just specific rooting structures, but then sort of honing it in and, and really kind of focusing on the soil environment again, where most of the nutrients and water are going to be locked up for plant absorption. It, it's just incredible. So, you know, you mentioned important character developments that sort of set the stage and, and really kind of kicked off a lot of this. Are you able to, or at least at this point, have you pinned down a few things that were extremely important in the evolution of roots that kind of, again, set the stage for what we see today or throughout, you know, later fossil evidence? Yeah. So, I mean, it's very difficult to actually come up with a, a kind of key list of the of the things being really important. But obviously, as I said, the, this transition between these rhizoid-based rooting systems and roots as we know them today, developing a, a root meristem and a root cap, is clearly a hugely important innovation. And that's one that we still don't properly understand. I mean, the, the evolution of entirely new meristem is, is absolutely fascinating and something to work on in the future. But beyond that, uh, one of the very interesting things about um, the roots of euphilophytes, so this, these are the, the group with ferns and sea plants, is their roots branch by what we call endogenous lateral branching. So what that means is you have like a, a parent root growing down and that new lateral roots are produced on the sides of the roots at a distance from the tip. Hmm. So if you think about this, this is actually completely different 
to what's going on above ground in most plants. So most plants above ground are producing, they're branching either dichotomously or subdichotomously and then or developing from these kind of axillary meristems. So I think the development and the evolution of this kind of endogenous lateral branching was obviously crucially important. And then beyond them, we can think about, you know, these early roots that had wood for the first time. So allowing roots to be much bigger and things like the endodermis and other key features of this have all been crucially important roots in general. And yeah, just actually one, one final thing on that is it's quite interesting to think about the development of plants from very early on. So if we think about the development of the embryo of plants, so like fights and ferns have an embryo where you have the shoot meristem on one side and kind of laterally to that you have a, a root meristem growing out. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we think about when we move into seed plants, you have this what we kind of class as bipolar growth. So you've got a dominant root meristem growing in one direction and a shoot growing in the other. So I think all these changes in roots also had a key part to play in this change in the embryo from um, moving towards the kind of seed plant embryo we're so used to today. Wow. And it sounds like this really is kind of a story of unique innovations coming on board and complexity increasing and more specialization and compartmentalization increasing that really set the stage for the dominance of the terrestrial ecosystem that plants eventually achieved, right? I mean, to go from something that was living in sort of these wet, soilless communities to, uh, you know, even just those trees and the Carboniferous, you know, when we started to really see forests evolving, that really kind of came about through more and more specialization of these structures, right? Oh, completely. I really think the period of time between the kind of end of the Silurian period through to the Carboniferous, there's a huge amount of innovation. Rooting systems are rapidly increasing in their depth, in their complexity. And this is leading on to you know, the first of these very complex ecosystems like we see in the Carboniferous, these kind of classic coal swamp environments where we've got an enormous diversity of rooting systems. And more so than that, we've actually got adaptions to being in these wet environments, similar to some of the adaptions we see in in roots today in wet environments. But also we've got records from the plants growing in drier environments. And again, we can see there that these plants have rooting systems that are really adapting and enabling them to support these giant trees, both in the wetland environments and in the more mountain environments as well. Oh, yeah. And another thing to think about, too, is you we kind of hinted at it early on is one of the major assumptions is that, uh, you know, roots would have a, a shared ancestor or at least it happened once and then went crazy. But is there evidence in the fossil record that there was some dead ends, maybe unique adaptations that didn't play out or were really good for the situation at that time and then kind of became, you know, quote unquote, obsolete? Or is it we kind of see really a few lineages taking off once roots happen and then diversification from those those core groups is there any way to kind of elucidate that yeah that's that is a really interesting question and stephanie to try to come at that we need to try to understand the kind of diversity of rooting systems we see today and then try and chart that back to understand the kind of number of origins of roots and as i've already mentioned the evidence from the rhiney church clearly supports the independent origins of roots in the lycophyte lineage compared to the philophyte lineage but we're still quite unsure about what's going on in the early euphilophyte lineage. So it's very difficult to know what some of these early rooting systems were and how they evolved. And thinking of the kind of diversity in this point in the Devonian time is actually one of the first the first types of trees to grow on Earth are these a group of plants called the cladoxylids. And what's quite interesting about them is, again, they're doing something just a bit different from the kind of seed plant rooting systems we're used to. So there's definitely been this kind of diversity. So there's quite a few different ways to anchor a tree. And I think some of these have been, you know, tried out by this group in the kind of early Devonian. In When we move into the Carboniferous, there's a number of different fern groups that are 
also having these kind of different rooting systems that are allowing themselves to become these kind of different and larger trees. And so I really think there has been an enormous amount of diversity and there must have been a few dead ends along that along that kind of route as well. Hmm. That's so amazing to think about. And again, it's often context based. I'm sure the selection pressures, despite, you know, physics being universal through time, the the environments were changing and it, it all kind of comes down to the same idea of anchorage versus nutrient uptake but to think about all of the experiments and the different pressures that could have shaped them i mean there's just endless things to think about and hypothesize and, and look for really right yeah precisely and i really am struck by the diversity of rooting systems because we we so often think of roots almost like if you do a kind of cartoon of a plant you just have the root going down underground but when you look out there in nature you see there's such a huge variety i mean one of the things I love most are the, the roots of, of mangroves, for example, where mm. you have a you have a rooting system below ground in these anoxic waters, but obviously they need oxygen to aspire. So rather than having roots that grow down, they've got roots that grow up, these breathing roots, these pneumatophores that grow out of the water and allow oxygen to get in through the roots down to their below ground rooting system. So again, you know, you can take one step and think about those mangroves, but think about the root vegetables. Again, that's another a type of rooting system which we're so familiar with, but we often don't think of as also carrying out these kind of multiple functions of both a storage unit and carrying out the rooting function. And then, yeah, finally as well, we think about roots mainly going into the ground, but there's so many plants such as epiphytes that have their roots halfway up a tree or they're growing in the canopy. So there really is this huge, yeah, huge variety of different rooting systems. Yeah, I mean, I'm picturing all of these examples in my head and going like, oh, wow, yeah. I mean, I've never... I mean, how often do you sit down and think side by side comparisons in your head about what plants are doing today, let alone what has been possible in the past? I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. So I guess in in terms of today and, and what's exciting for you on the horizon, I mean, what are some of the next steps? What kind of questions are you looking to answer and where are you looking to find these? Yeah, so there's kind of two main two main strands to my research at the moment. One is I'm continuing to work on plants in the Rhiney Church. I really do think the plants in the writer are, are fascinating. There's still a lot to be understood. And so really to, to sum that up in terms of the work I've done previously with this plant, Astrotalon, is one of the problems with working with the writer is we're often left by looking through these kind of individual thin sections, which give a great snapshot at what one part of the plant is doing, but are actually very difficult for us to combine together to produce a reconstruction. So this is where some of the difficulty comes in in kind of paleo reconstructions, where you actually think, okay, We've kind of made a kind of Frankenstein by sticking bits bits of the plant that we know and then kind of joining them up. And one of the problems with doing this in something like the Rhiney Church is the plants were just so different then, you really need to be building evidence-based reconstructions. So that's kind of one of the strands I'm working on at the moment, which is to try and gain a much better understanding of the 3D structure of these rooting systems of Astrotalon. Yeah, so that's kind of one thing I'm doing. And then the, the other one is kind of following on from work I've been doing on my PhD with a plant called Isoetes. So Isoetes is the only living member of the Isoetales, which had this enormous evolutionary history, and they were the, the giant trees in the Carboniferous period. So they're a group that have always fascinated me, and from doing geology, they really seem to be the first plants to kind of gravitate to, because these plants, these giant club mosses, were so iconic in the Carboniferous, and then today these plants are just a couple of centimetres in height. <laughs> Um, and I've been working to um, examine the kind of genes expressed in Isoetes species and to look especially at the genes expressed in their routine systems. So that's been a, a really fun and kind of ongoing project, which has started in my PhD with having to wade around in some loss in Scotland and then also to try and find the kind of terrestrial species of this plant as well. And then trying to go all the way from there from collecting these plants in the field to 
growing them in the lab and producing transcriptomes of their gene expression. So they're, they're two of the main directions I'm working on currently. Wow. And to think about the genetic components of this and to add that to the story you're trying to tell is, is really complex, but again, gives you such a more complete picture of really sort of developmentally what's going on. And I mean, is is a lot of this shared genetic mutations or is there a lot more going on that we don't fully understand in, in terms of sort of the genetic underpinnings of a lot of these? Or is this, again, really why the, the future is, is, is so focused on, on that as part of the project? Yeah, so I think there's so many questions that we just don't, yeah, we currently don't know about the genes expressed in, in lycophytes. And especially in terms of root development, it's a really fascinating question to say, okay, roots independently evolved, but did they utilize the same genes? And that's the kind of question that we're very interested in looking into. And some people have already started looking into this as well, working with the plant Selaginella. And what they find is that actually many of the genes seem to be similar. And what's so interesting about this is it looks like many of these gene families are incredibly ancient and maybe you know evolved close to a billion years ago when plants were in the water. Hmm. And these same gene families have then been co-opted and have undergone diversification in different lineages to then be functioning in, in roots of different species today. So there's really this kind of very complex evolution of old genes getting reused and also gene duplication and genes taking on new functions. And so I really hope that more comparative studies are, are really opening the way for, for more of this in the future. Wow. I love it. It's like how many different things can you make with the same sort of toolkit? That is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And I really think this idea of this kind of genetic toolkit and these these toolkits are really so, so ancient. And you know, there's been some great developments such as the 1KP project where they're sequencing over a thousand transcriptomes of plants. And this just allows us to start following these genes through this kind of vast period of evolutionary time by using their living relatives. And by doing that, you can really yeah, build up a much greater picture of, you know, kind of key gene diversification events. <laughs> well, I, for one, am never going to look at roots the same way again. <laughs> yeah, I think they're, they're pretty, pretty fantastic. And I really have plenty more big questions left for the future as well. Yeah, for sure. So in that regard, if anyone wants to keep track of what you're doing and, and stay on board with uh, the investigations going on into root evolution, how do you recommend listeners find out more about you and your work? So I definitely say follow me on Twitter. That's that's where I post most of my most of the things about my research. So my username is Sandy underscore Heath, and you can yeah find me on Twitter, follow me, and that's that'll be where I'm going to be posting more about my research and keep an eye on there for more updates in the future. Really fantastic, and I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for this episode. But Dr. Heatherington, thank you so much for talking to us. This is absolutely incredible work. Keep it up. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's been a real pleasure to be on it. And just before I go, it's obviously really nice to say thank you very much to my funders. So Magdalen College here in Oxford have been funding me for my current fellowship and also to Professor Leo Dolan and his lab. So he was my host supervisor and um, he's hosting my fellowship at the moment. So thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you about Roots today. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, yeah. Do keep in touch. Let us know as things develop. Brilliant. Thanks. Yep. Cheers. I bet you'll never look at Roots the same way again. I know I now have a deeper appreciation for these incredible plant organs. I thank Dr. Hetherington for sitting down and talking with us and I really wish him the best. As I've said before, one of my favorite things about paleobotany is you never know what the next crack of the rock is going to reveal. And it's always amazing that, despite how rare the fossilization process actually is, that we're able to get the resolution that we currently have to tell stories like Dr. Hetherington does. I'm excited to see what the future holds. That about does it for this week. Just remember that we have t-shirts and other goodies for sale over at teespring.com stores slash indefensiveplants. 
Also, we still have stickers for sale at indefensiveplants.com shop. And if you want to support the podcast in other ways, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. All right, everyone, I thank you for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button because, as always, there are a ton of great interviews and conversations just over the horizon, so stay tuned. Otherwise, I hope you all have a fun and safe week. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.